This podcast includes explicit language and situations. It is intended for adults 18 years of age and older. These thoughts and opinions are not those of any specific group, employer, or individual. Listener discretion is advised. From the Spade and Archer Studios, welcome to Behind the Yard Sign with your hosts, Justin Reardon and Kelly Hanahan. Justin, welcome to episode 13 of Behind the Yard Sign. <laughs> Lucky episode number 13. This is like when we start getting angsty because like, you know, we have pimples and zits and, you know, there's some girl who's talking to the boy that we like and we want to go to the junior yeah. high dance. This is like whenever, oh, this is our awkward phase. This is, yeah, I was going to say, this is all awkward all the time. Oh, I love this part. <laughs> it's the best. I'm super excited to talk to Matt Goyer today, but also we've just been busy on the podcast. There's just so many stories to tell, you know, like I feel like around 12 and 13, I was like, oh, okay, I feel like we're getting in the hang of this. And like the guests we're bringing in, everyone has such a fascinating story. A lot of times we don't even really know their story. We're learning about them live on the podcast. We know right. a little bit about them, but not a ton. And it's really fun hearing about their specific journeys and everyone has such a story to tell. I actually look forward to this podcasting moment each week because with COVID, there's so much le- less interaction every interaction interaction that you have is on the phone or through Zoom or through email. And there's very rarely do you sit down and like, just shoot the shit with someone. And this podcast is very like, let's shoot the shit. And so I get to talk to you and I find out what's going on in your life. And I get to talk to new people and old people. And, you know, we had that special episode, the special edition last week where we talked to Jasmine and like, I didn't know anything about her or Kelly. I knew knew a little bit about about Humble Design, but I didn't really know a whole bunch about these people's lives. And my God, that's just such a nice insight. And we just are missing that like stranger connection because we're not meeting new people right now. I feel like the podcast is like you and me going to happy hour or something. Wouldn't it be nice to go to a happy hour? Uh, I Uh, I vote the first place we go to the happy hour is the Alibi. If you've ever been to Portland, Oregon, there's this bar called the Alibi. I always go there during the day because it's my day drinking spot because you go in there. I've I've gone to the Alibi with you. I've been there with you. (laughs) It is like pitch black nighttime in there. And it feels like a Disneyland theme ride. Like if there was an alcoholics theme ride at Disneyland, (laughs) it would be the Alibi. And you can get like a flight of rum, like various oh, rums from around uh-huh, the world. Uh-huh, There's like 50 uh-huh. of them or something. I'm super classy. So I always get like the white trash Bloody Mary, which is like a Coors Light and the and tomato juice. Oh my God. Funny. Yeah. And the tomato juice they sell is a stuff called Snappy Toms. And it's this little tiny tomato juice can. And instead of having like the flip top, like a Coca-Cola can has at this point, they have those ones where like you literally pull it and it peels off like from the 1970s. They give you that and they give you a Coors Light. You mix them together and you drink this michelada thing which is delicious by the way so you're in there for an hour and a half two hours having a cocktail or whatever then you walk out thinking that it's nighttime and as you walk out it's like vampire minute we're like and then the light shines in your eyes oh god it's so terrible yes i love that place it's great what are we talking about today i think we should talk a little bit about advances in technology around real estate because with covid we are seeing some really creative solutions out there and the thing i would love to talk talk about is the prevalence of the digital brochure. When you go out to eat, you were telling me this. So you've been, yes. you've been to a I was, restaurant, I right? This I whole haven't thing been to you, a yeah. restaurant yet. So when you go to a restaurant, at least in Portland, and I'm sure a lot of cities are, you know, again, using technology to be innovative during COVID times, they have a QR code on the table, on the menu, or on something that you don't have to touch. Maybe it's just like, sometimes I've seen it literally taped to the table and you just open up your camera and you don't take a photo of it. You just literally hover your camera lens 
over the QR code and then a link pops up and it takes you right to their menu. So you're looking at the menu, but on your phone, touching your own things. Just one last thing they have to you know, pass out, collect, clean, all that, right? QR codes are being used now more than ever. And it's certainly a technology that's been around for a long time. Hardly anybody ever used it. This is this is the time for the QR code to shine. <laughs> COVID it's, is the QR moment. <laughs> exactly. We decided to do something very similar because we enjoyed the belly to belly business practices that we did have and seeing our clients and dropping things off at their offices and all of those things that have gone completely out the window. So we're thinking about new ways ourselves to communicate what our services are, talk about our success stories, demonstrate our value, have people really be able to check us out, feel us out digitally before they'd ever either want to do an instant pricing or book a consult with us and all those things. So we are using a QR code. And so if you ever are any of our staged homes now, you can actually just hover your camera over the QR code that's framed and we're going to put it in the kitchen and people can get our digital brochure right away, which we never had digital brochure before, which is very exciting as well and very green. Yes. So, okay, QR code, first off, let's just talk about that because As officially 46-year-old, yesterday was my birthday, I'm now 46 years old, I have officially reached that lump where new technology is frightening to me. So we were like two months into developing this digital brochure thing and the whole QR code. And I had like done a mock-up of the QR code and how cool it was going to look. And about a week ago, I was like, okay, Kelly, I'm going to have to figure out how to use a QR code because I've never done it before. So can you recommend a good app for me to download to... (laughs) read QR codes and you said uh you don't need an app for that what (laughs) so here's what I learned it's literally just your camera a camera on any phone will recognize a QR code and for anybody who's out there who doesn't know what a QR code is you've seen it before it's a square that looks like a barcode from a price on it in the grocery store on steroids and your phone recognizes it, right? Like it's it sees that and it's like, ooh, I know yeah. what that is. And then it sends you yeah. to a website. Picks it up right away, takes you right to the website. It's so easy. It's so it easy. The- it seems like it should be harder than that. And it's not. But it's, re- it's been really fun, you know? Like I don't, imagine if I had come in when I started with you guys and was like, we need to get rid of the physical brochures and do a digital brochure. It was a totally different world. Yeah, everything was handshakes and belly rubs. And Absolutely. It just- we created this really cool thing. It's super dynamic. It's really beautiful. We can obviously, share so much more multimedia inside the digital brochure because people are already on the website. It takes them directly to our website. I know that in sharing this story and how actually easy it was, I mean, it's work to get everything exactly right. And this is a company of designers. So we want everything to be pure perfect. perfection. Anally and perfect. So, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, how many real estate agents could benefit from a tool like that? And it was just, it was really just elbow grease. It's not very expensive. There are runs the gamut of what kind of services you can get and a lot of them honestly were overkill even for us because there's cadillacs and there's volkswagens out there right totally yes 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 as in all digital tools honestly so here's the thing where i think that this translates over to real estate agents is that right now there's really only one way to do something online that is purely dedicated to a listing that you have and that's the single property website and a single property website is not necessarily easy to put together because even the simple List de- web designing tools like Squarespace or, or Wix 
Is that was it? Yep. WIX? Yep. Are they, there's, there's a significant learning curve on how to figure out how to do those things. So when we went through and we found this like this digital brochure, a lot of people would refer to it like as a flip book, uh, like yeah. a magazine, an online magazine. Flipbook is a brand name for digital brochure, like Matterport is a brand name for 3D walkthrough or Coca-Cola is a brand name for soda pop. Going through and creating this, we made our template now because we're super anal, we wanted it to look perfect. Of course, it took us, I don't know, maybe 30 man hours to go through and create this template. But once now that the template is created, it's like drag and drop to just slide in new photographs. Anytime we want to change something, it is super simple. My suggestion would be maybe you hire somebody or maybe you create your own template yourself of your own digital brochure for a listing that you work on. Then maybe that one takes, you know, 15 or 30 hours to like figure out. Then for each subsequent listing after that, since you already have a template, it's drag and drop the text, drag and drop the pictures, publish. And it's super easy. And a lot of these systems, it's a subscription. Like we pay what? 120 bucks, 125 bucks a year yeah, or something like that? I think that. it's 180 or something. 180 bucks a year. So yeah, that's what, uh, I don't know, $16 a month or something ridiculous. Like <laughs> Not a good at math. So uh, <laughs> it's very pretty. inexpensive. Yeah. But it's unlimited flipbooks. I can make as many as I want. And it's super easy. It actually generates a URL, like an address on the website for you. And yeah. so you can use that URL in all of your listings and people can, can take you directly to the flipbook and you can change that flipbook as many times as you want at any any point like if you get new photographs taken or if you change the totally. price you can change those and they can be printed if somebody really wants to print it out if people had assistants or people who worked under them what a perfect task for someone who's helping you out like just to be able to switch out that digital brochure for you and having that ready to go because it'd be like yeah turn and burn with a new property just like drag and drop and you're good and you're set and it's one of those things where like you know trying to do it in-house to like build a website or a lot of times you mm -hmm. know even to try and build a digital brochure sometimes it seems like it's done and you don't have enough time to do that and you need an outsourcing yeah. thing. The thing is, is that I think this is so fast that it might even be faster than making an actual brochure. So once you've got your, your layout done and it meets your branding standards, I think it's really, really easy. And so highly recommended, very highly recommended. I mean, imagine just to, to like step this out for an agent, if they had a property and they wanted to create a custom digital brochure for that property and say it was 10, 15 pages, that would take you 20 minutes, I bet, to drag Probably. in new photos, drop in the new content, the details about the listing, and boom. The publishing takes about a minute. I mean, our yeah. brochure is is 22 pages long, and mm -hmm. I, I couldn't believe it. The first time I looked at it, I was like, I took a guess. I was like, this is like six to eight pages. And I went through and like, oh, wow, this is 20, 22 pages. It's yeah, really yeah, long. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, it's so quick. It's so easy to look at. It's not something that necessarily sizes well for a phone, but it's great for a computer. But you can yeah. certainly get it on your phone and then email it to yourself or send it to yourself. Yes. Look at it on your computer screen. It's like the size of a magazine and it's on your computer screen magazine size. If you guys want to look at ours as an example, it's www.spade-archer.com slash brochure. Super easy, unless you're Super a terrible easy. speller like me. <laughs> Bro, B R O dash sure, S U R E. Bro, sure, man. Bro, sure. <laughs> we should make a second web URL that's like the, for terrible spellers. It's just bro, sure, right? Please don't do Let's that. Let's not do that. We've done a lot more with email, we've done a lot more with email campaigns. We've learned and benefited a ton from digital and all the stories we keep hearing from people both on the podcast and off is how absolutely slammed busy they are if 
they were early adopters of tech or they ha already had these processes rolling before COVID. So it's inspiring for us because we know that if you're talking to people through multiple channels pretty regularly, hitting up your social media, keeping your website really inspiring and dynamic and exciting to be in and, you know, your, your website and your digital work really conveys specific emotion, that those people come back to you and they want to work with you. And I just don't know how some people don't do any of these things. Like you're looking at listings every single day. Yeah. What is going on with the strong listings and then the weak listings? And what are you seeing happen? There's the dichotomy of condos versus houses. First off, the condo market is having a really hard time. Portland and Seattle are both struggling in those markets because number one, people are trying to get away from high density areas because of COVID, because they want to be um, further away from other people. Two, a lot of people are working from home. People yeah. who own homes tend to be in more white collar jobs, which means that their offices are no longer open, which means they have to work out in their homes. They have to work in yes. their homes. They have to cook in their homes. And so yes. having 300 square feet is a very tough thing to be in, in a COVID market. So people are, are moving into larger spaces during COVID. They're moving farther away from the city during COVID. Condos happen to not only be very small, very tight around a lot, a lot of people, they are also in the hotspot areas of both of these cities where the Black Lives Matters protests are happening and where mm -hmm. the rioting is happening. And so people, uh, I, I was talking to an agent yesterday and he said, yeah, I just had a sale fail. The agent called me and last Sunday was the day before Columbus Day slash Indigenous Peoples Day. People went through the park blocks and tore down statues of Theodore Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln. The person called the next day and said, that's it. We give up. We're not moving to Portland and the sale failed. Ugh. And so what's really interesting is that no matter what the people's intentions are that went and tore down those statues, it needs to be known that that is affecting people wanting to move to our city or not. That strife is is tough for people to walk into and be like, yeah, I really love that. That's fantastic. And I think really what it comes down to is that a lot of people don't really care if the cause is good or if the cause is bad. A lot of people feel like violence is not the answer. No matter what it is, violence is not a-okay. And around real estate, nobody wants to live in the middle of violence. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if your cause is good or if your cause is bad. No one likes to be in danger. It's chaotic. It feels unsafe. It feels uncertain. It's, I don't know what I'm going to get with this purchase. Like, what are things going to turn into? You know? Exactly. We're seeing those two dichotomies first. So condos versus houses. Houses are yes. doing great. Condos are having a super hard time, which is so funny because what we're seeing, like, in the two services that we provide, which is pay up front and guaranteed, every single condo is going guaranteed. Every single house is going pay up front. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah, which yeah. we're fine with that because eventually yeah. COVID is going to go away. The protests are going to go away and we're going to have, you know, 300 condos staged and they're all going to sell. So I'm cool right. with that. That's okay. The other thing that we're seeing is, do you ever watch a reality show called RuPaul's Drag Race? I haven't, but I, you know, have been privy to many morning Many conversations, meetings. yes. <laughs> many morning meetings at Spade Nurture where everyone's talking about it, and the only people who are completely clueless are me and Cole, our finance guy. And we're just like, yeah. we have no idea what you're talking about. You can always tell that a queen is going to go home when Michelle Visage says something like, sweetheart, you have to advance your look. Like, you have to move forward because the rest of the, t the rest of the contestants are leaving you behind and the queen responds with this I just have to stay true to my style 
if I were to change it, I wouldn't be me anymore. You know, insert right. drag queen name here. You can always tell that bitch is done. She's fucking done. There are two types of real estate agents. And I really like, this is like the, the one time where I've really seen like a reality TV show being like a reflection of true life. I see these real estate agents that are like, hey, you know what? I've never done digital brochures. I've never done yeah. a, a single property website. I don't like using home stagers. I don't like uh, having more than five photographs. I've always sold my properties this way. And if I were to do it any other way, then that wouldn't be true to insert name of real estate agent brand here. If you are choosing not to advance, your company is going down. I belong to a, a group called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, and I've watched two types of companies. I watch the companies that just flat out close their doors the day that COVID hit and they're like, nope, we're not doing it. We're not gonna take on the advancements. We're not gonna deal with the safety issues. We're not gonna deal with any of that. We're closing the doors. That's the way it's gonna be. And then I saw other companies that were like, okay, well, we're gonna shut our doors, but we're gonna figure out some other way to make some business here. Mm -hmm. And I've seen thrive and not thrive. And it's pretty much down the line. Like the folks that tried and changed and made something different, they survived. And the ones that didn't, yes, didn't. What's our favorite and most hated word of the year? COVID? I don't know. <laughs> Pivot. Pivot. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, but here's the thing is that like, does it necessarily need to be a pivot? Can it be an evolution? Like Spade totally. and Archer was not a company that had an email newsletter, or as I always refer to it, spam. I, we just were never that company. We would have never been that company that held digital seminars. But I, you know, I sit on my high horse and, you know, I must get a lot of nosebleeds being up here so high, taking the high road all the time. And, you know, you came in, you talked to me and you were like, look, if we don't grow, we will die. And we had to evolve. We had to evolve our brand and our brand is very different than it looked five months ago. All that being said, the one thing that has not changed in our brand has been our core values. Those came with us. They're just the core values. When we opened our company in 2009, we had those core values and our brand looked one way and we have advanced, And which is so funny because our first website was black background. And yeah. halfway through, we were like, we got to change it to white because everybody had white, white backgrounds. And then, mm -hmm. everybody, and then mm -hmm. everybody had white backgrounds. And I was like, no, we're not doing this anymore. We got to go to black. Now we're black. And now it's so funny. So like two weeks ago, Facebook introduced dark mode, like night yeah, mode, yeah. which is a yeah. black background Facebook. So almost all websites are now going to black and we did that shit two years ago so I know <laughs> it's the evolution of the brand right it stay is. true to yourself and, and also evolve but I have to say like I feel stronger in a leadership role for the company because we talk about our core values so often having them is one thing but keeping yeah. them top of mind really does help steer decisions whether it's like working with a staff member or like designing something or working with a client yeah. and so like this podcast i feel like has given us an opportunity to just always be referring maybe people should just like literally write them out and put them on their wall i've seen that thing written out on the wall and often when somebody feels compelled that they need to write them on the wall it's because their core values are so complicated that yeah, it is nearly yeah, impossible yeah. to remember. Our core values has six words, beautiful homes, thoughtfully conceived, gracefully executed. 
those are the six words that are our core values. And it's, you don't have to write them on the wall because you know them, you have them in your backpack all the time. When I go into a company and I see the core values written on the wall, it's usually like in a really large red poster with gigantic white font all over it. And it is like six feet tall and like eight feet wide. And it's these paragraphs that are like, these are our core values. And it is impossible to remember. I've been coached on like producing core values a couple of times and inevitably every single time they come back to you and they go, and what does that mean? And they keep asking that question. And what does that mean? And what does that mean? And they want you to take it down to like one or two words. And you're like, you know, innovation is like a core value, right? They don't want it to be like, we are constantly looking for new ways to create new products that are going to make our people happy. That is a terrible core value. Whereas like, if you were to boil that down, you get innovation, (laughs) you know? And I like, that's that's how simple it becomes. If you are looking for a great exercise in creating core values, there is a book called Good to Great that talks about companies that have really strong core values that have outperformed the S&P 500 for the last 20 years in a row. Um, and that book, Good to Great, is like an excellent exercise in figuring out how to create core values. And they talk about it in terms of the idea of the hedgehog concept. The fox creates a new fantastic scheme every single day. The hedgehog rolls up into a ball every single day. And although the um, Fox's concept is fantastic every single day, it's like so awesome, such a new great idea. The hedgehog rolls up into a ball and wins. And so the hedgehog is kind of boring because he refers to his core values every day. What's my core value? I roll into a ball. The Fox is creating a new core value every day. While his concept is fun and interesting and the hedgehog is kind of boring, the hedgehog wins. And the one who wins is the one who gets the profits. So uh, core values are super important. Let's go talk to Matt about what he's been up to because I know he's been super slammed. I know he's got a crazy growing business. So I wonder what's going on for him and we can find out, kind of feel out what his core values are. He's in the green room. We might have to tell him <laughs> to uh, to put the donut down and come back in here and talk. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's go do it. Guess who's here? It's Matt freaking Goyer of Urban Living. We're awesome. so lucky to have you. Matt, how are you? Doing well. Excited to be here. Man, it's great to see you. So we have been waiting for months to get you on the show and your your schedule is so busy that we had to just wait. And so now here we are, lucky episode number 13 and we've got Matt Goyer. So how are you? What's going on? <laughs> well, it's been crazy. I mean, certainly the craziest fall that I think any real estate professional has ever experienced. <laughs> when the pandemic sort of was getting going, real estate shut down in Seattle for a little bit. It certainly seemed like minute. the whole year was going to get derailed. I spent a lot of time working on my house and other projects. It was a welcome break. But then it just kept building and building and building. Buyers returned, sellers wanted a different house. And for me, it was a slower build. I think other agents got back to work a lot quicker. But for us, it took a little bit longer. But we've had an absolutely crazy fall. I feel like the end's in sight. Who knows? We're in three states. We're in Washington, Oregon, and California. And Washington was the only MLS that officially shut down for like, it was like, what, 36 hours or something ridiculous where they were just like, we're not going <laughs> to, we're just shutting down the entire real estate industry. And then the lobbyists then went to work and turned it back on again. When you heard that, were you like, yeah, that's not going to last? Or did your heart drop? 
I mean, I, I thought the shutdown would last longer than it did. Like, certainly a 36-hour shutdown was surprisingly short given the world that we found ourselves in. So I was certainly expecting it to be longer. <laughs> you know, it was how do you I will tell you that it was the one time when denial worked really well for me because we heard about it about three days before it happened. They were like, yeah, we're shutting down the MLS. And I was like, yeah, Oregon and California aren't doing that. I don't believe it. I'll see. I'll believe it when I see it. So I was in total denial. So when it did happen, I didn't even really have time to accept it before they turned it back on again. And I was like, see, that was stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Denial served me well at that point. Let's back up just a touch here. Where'd you grow up? I was born in Winnipeg, up in Canada, lived in Canada for a long time, and then came down to the United States 15, 16 years ago. Having grown up in Canada, I have still a little bit of a Canadian accent. And then when I go home, they think I have an American accent. You have this weird hybrid accent where everyone thinks you're from somewhere else. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds very Pacific Northwest to me. Like, you know, pretty much impeccably perfect. How do you end up in real estate owning one of the coolest real estate companies around? Like, how does that journey happen for you? (laughs) Did you go to like college and major in urban living? Like, how did that happen? No, so I went to... uh, uh, to college, we call it university in Canada, and studied computer science and mathematics. During that time, I bought a rental property, got interested in real estate from that perspective, and then worked at Microsoft straight out of college. That's what brought me to Seattle. And then I worked at a tech startup, but more known as a real estate brokerage called Redfin for a really long time. <laughs> and there I ran marketing. And so I wasn't an agent. And then I left that, did a tech startup in the cooking space. We got acquired and I just got tired of working in an office, doing meetings, all that corporate BS and was like, man, I just want to follow my passion. And you're like, well, what's my passion? I don't have any passions other than like skiing and hockey and stuff like that. And it was like, oh, I write this blog about real estate that I've been doing as a hobby. Like, why don't why don't I turn that into my job? And so I became a real estate agent. The blog was first and then real estate. Yeah. So when I moved here in 2004 and I started looking for a condo, And there was very little information online about condos. You had to buy this Seattle Times Sunday paper and see who was advertising in order to figure out which condos to consider purchasing. There was nothing online. And so I started this blog that was like a basically a journal for myself of condo sales centers. And that became Urban Living. And I never really thought anyone would read it. I didn't. My purpose wasn't to build a blog that people would read. I was just journaling. Helping you stay organized. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then people started reading it. People expected me to go to more sales centers. And I ended up buying a condo and then another condo and then just kept chronicling what was going on in Seattle real estate. Do you know how many followers you have at this point? Uh, There's a couple thousand people who subscribe to the email we send out every Friday. And then we probably get, you know, around a thousand people a day visiting the blog. So, yeah, it's it's nicely read. A, A strange mix of real estate professionals and just people interested in real estate. One of our that's our one of our favorite questions is, you know, how did you get where you are? Because in real estate, the stories are so <laughs> incredibly unique. Literally, no one has your story. Everyone has a story that's just like, well, I went this way and then I went this way and then I went this way and was up and down and sideways and did all these things. And then finally, like kind of settled on their role in real estate. that They really fell in love with. And it's I don't think we've talked to anybody, Justin, who had a real estate blog. So that's really interesting. Yeah, we've had punk rockers. We've had <laughs> we've had <laughs> musicians. We've had all different kinds of people, but that's a really cool avenue as well and makes sense given your background in tech. So their passion inside real estate. I think 
a mistake that a lot of real estate agents make at the beginning is to try to be all things to all people. Urban Living, the blog was very, it was very niche to start. It's broadened a bit over time, but you know, our focus initially was really on new construction condos, cool lofts. And that's how we developed that brand initially was really focusing in on, on that one thing. And we were known as experts in that space, even though we weren't a real estate brokerage to start. It was like, if you're thinking of buying a condo, you should talk to Matt. He knows every new construction building out there. He's been to all of them. And it kind of broadened as my interest broadened. You know, as you get older, you move out of the condo and you move into a townhome and then you buy a single family home, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's kind of expanded. Suddenly your blog is called Suburban Living. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not moving to the suburbs, but. <laughs> we certainly have talked a lot about whether urban living is the right name for what we do because we do help people outside of Seattle on occasion, but we have such a strong following now that it's hard to hard to think of calling ourselves something different. When we first started out, we were taking anything. Like people were like, "Well, we need to stage a living room." I'm like, "Yeah, we'll stage a living room for you." And they're like, "We need you to plan our wedding." We're like, "Yeah, we'll plan your wedding for you." They're like, <laughs> "We need you to design some chopsticks for us." Yeah, we'll design those chopsticks for you. It's so difficult to say no when somebody comes to you with a project, whether it's in your wheelhouse or not. In the beginning, when you're just like trying to buy groceries, it's so hard to say no. And eventually, you figure out through blood, sweat, and mostly tears, because I got to tell you, I had a lot of clients who cried <laughs> and I cried a lot during projects that I shouldn't have taken. You went about it exactly the opposite way. You found your niche first and then found a business model to fit it. So you said that you had bought a condo in the beginning. Are you and still in a condo? Are you in a house? Like what's going on? Where are you? What's your living thing going on now? Yeah. So after the condo, we, we rented a single family home that looked like a townhome. Total side note, but I think one of the questions you need to ask real estate agents is about the one that got away. Every real estate agent has that story of like, there's that house or property that I had the chance to buy and I didn't. Tell us. Tell that, us about it. That rental property was the one that got away where uh, when we were living there, it was like 2010 or 2011. It was like the best possible year to buy a house. And our landlord wanted to sell and she made us an offer. And me being the, She made you an offer. She's like, you should buy this place. This is the price. And me being the smart ass, I wasn't a real estate agent at the time, but I knew a lot about real estate was like, it's not worth that. And I go back now and I look at those emails <laughs> and see that we like didn't come together over like $20,000. Yeah. And we could have... We could have bought this house in Seattle for like 600 grand and what it's worth today. It's just like, what do you think it's worth today? Oh, I mean, it's well over a million dollars. Oh, <laughs> and it's oh. like, that's the one that, not because we love the house, but I think it just would have been a, a, a great investment and we should have bought it. But it's fortunate we didn't because. Bright side, bright side. <laughs> we ended up renting a floating home, rented two different floating homes or a couple different years, discovered that lifestyle was for us. And we bought one, I don't know what it was, two and a half years ago. We're deep into a full studs out remodel. The home is totally torn apart and we're not living there, obviously. It's got seven months to go. Is this another floating home that you bought? Yeah, we bought a floating home. Remodel on a floating home, even more complicated. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a year of permitting and probably pay 50% more to do the remodel. So you've got kids that are at home, you're probably working at home. How has COVID affected the way that you run your business or were you set up already? Like what was, what are you finding? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly a challenge. We have a really small team. And so Urban Living's, it's like five or six people. Everyone basically was working 
remotely to start. Like we have an office. It's tiny. I'm usually the only person in the office. So COVID didn't really change any of that. We already collaborate a lot over, uh, we use the communication tool Slack. And so that's how we communicate. And so that's been, I'm glad that we have been doing that for a really long time to start. You know, a lot of people are, are depending much more on online presence as far as like having 3D walkthroughs and videos and floor plans and all that stuff. Is that something that you've implemented or did you always do that? What's your take on this? Yeah, we've always done that stuff. I always considered it required and always surprised that people don't do 2D floor plans and the Matterport 3D and video when appropriate. Like it just blows my mind that in this day and age when it's so cost effective to have a 2D floor plan made that every listing should have one, in my opinion. Now with COVID, they're certainly more popular. And so we were ahead of that trend. So I think that served us well. And I think now we need to think about what's next, though certainly we, we're seeing a return to the way business was done before. And Seattle Open Houses just started up last weekend, um, which is a little controversial, but... With lots of rules though, right? Like there's rules on how those work. It's yeah, not like just like, you know, have a party, have fun, <laughs> go for it. You could make your uh, like there's a, a ice cream store here in town called Salt and Straw that always has a line out in front of it. I think they pay actors to like stand in line to make their ice cream shop look busy, even when it rains outside. So like you could make your listing look like super popular. Just have like people stand out there like, <laughs> waiting in line. What are you waiting for? Looking at a condo. <laughs> <laughs> I might I might steal that trick. <laughs> It's really fascinating from where we sit at Spade and Archer because we just constantly see how so many agents are conducting their listing process, right? So whether they're using the tech or like really slow to adopt it or, you know, they're doing the 3D, they're doing the matter, like all the things. And it's just, we've seen over and over and over and over again, especially us as stagers, staging, investing in good photography, all the bells and whistles on the listing. Like these people are so busy and so slammed. And the people who just never adopted those things just struggle so much. I mean, we can see it plain as day because sometimes we'll stage and they didn't do all those other things. I love it when somebody photographs are like we do. They pay I know, five thousand bucks for staging and then they take an iPhone and go through and shoot it. Or we had one guy who photographed his own project last week and it had that weird digital date stamp in the corner from like, you know, the <laughs> 1990s. Dude, you paid so much money for staging and now you didn't even photograph it. Right. Like what? What? Why? Why even bother? And so we see the ones that are busy are the ones that invest in their listings and the ones that are not busy are the ones who do not invest in their listings. Like if you don't invest in your business, you won't get business. Like this is pretty basic, right? Yeah, there's just certainly a wide spectrum of real estate agents out there. And it just, it baffles me when real estate or, you know, a seller or a buyer, like there are so many people that they could work with and they just, they don't make a thoughtful choice about it. <laughs> Well, yeah. and a lot of times, you know, it comes down to like, well, you know, I, I, I got a 1% listing, so I only have to pay 1%. Yeah, well, what are you getting for that 1%? How much did it cost you? Was it 20% in your overall sale price? Good investment there. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's definitely some short-sightedness on the part of uh, uh, sellers. That's is what it is. Everybody's got that little voice in the back of their head that says, you're not good enough. You're not, nobody's going to hire you. You know, even your friends turn you down. Um, and I'm sure every real estate agent <laughs> out there has had a friend who hired the, you know, their sister's cousin or whatever it was. When you experience failure and you're feeling down about yourself and that little voice in the back of your head says that basically like, this is what you get. How do you respond to that little voice? It's knowing that we provide a very high level of customer service and we feel that we will always do the best job possible to represent you as either a buyer or a seller. You're not going to win every listing. You're not going to convince every 
buyer that you, you're the right agent for them. And, and being a real estate agent, you have to have both a combination of thick skin and you can't let it get you down and you should focus forward instead of dwelling on getting rejected. And the other thing is, is just being optimistic. Like I think as a real estate agent, you just need to be optimistic all the time. Every time you go out and meet a new buyer, like we are going to win this buyer over and they're going to work with us. Thick skin and optimism, I think, is is what gets me through those difficult times. And I think those are two key attributes of, 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 of being a successful real estate agent. That's really interesting because that, that combination, like, is, is your thick skin built up by being optimistic? We open ourselves up, we become empathetic, we allow people to hurt us. They come in, they like, you know, give you the old one, two. And each time you get bruised a little bit, you grow a slightly thicker skin and you're like, oh, well, that's one way somebody can treat you like shit. And <laughs> now I'm going to, I'm going to be optimistic and not let somebody hurt me like that again. And I think that the, the opposite is that you could build that thick skin and become jaded. Mm-hmm. But to build that thick skin and remain optimistic is a special talent that is required of service providers in general, real estate agents especially. Totally. It's easy to get jaded. I mean, this business is, it's a weird one. It's if you're just in it for the money, the money's nice, but it's not, it may not be enough. (laughs) Tell us about the worst day you've ever had in real estate. The day where you were like, why the fuck am I doing this? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it started with, we're selling a place in Fremont in Seattle and it was a couple days before closing and my assistant went over to just check on things to make sure that it was all ready for the key handover the next day. And she she opens the door, goes upstairs, and there's a man in the house without a shirt on. The home had previously been an Airbnb, so and we were selling it fully furnished. The, the furnishing was going to the buyer. She's like, oh, sorry, uh, you must be an Airbnb guest. And she turned around and left and called me and was like, hey, there's a topless man in our listing. Can you just figure out if there's an Airbnb guest there or not that the, the seller didn't tell us about? And so we, you know, we called the seller or texted the seller because he was in Indonesia. And he's like, no, there's no Airbnb guests who are supposed to be in the house right now. We're like, weird. I go back and walk through the house and no one was there. But there was some like dirty dishes in the sink. They had like tidied up and put their dirty dishes in the sink. So I did the dishes and was like, okay, well, that's weird. Let's just make sure all the doors are locked and uh, we'll be all set for tomorrow. (laughs) And then we get an email the next morning being like, hey, we're the neighbors and uh, we think someone's living in your listing and we think they're in the house right now. And this email comes in at like 8.55 a.m. The listing agent, a nice woman, was going to go do a walkthrough of the place in five minutes. So I'm frantically trying to get her on the phone being like, do not go in the house. Do not go in the house. We think somebody's in the house. The call is coming from inside the house. (laughs) We're like, what is going on? And so then I rush over there. Oh, I had to drop my kid off at preschool first. So I'm like, okay, I'm on my way, dropping my kid off at preschool, on the phone with my wife. And she's like, don't you go in there. <laughs> like, you should be calling the police if someone's in there. And so I went all ready for a confrontation. Phone was out. 911 was already punched in, ready to hit call. And, and it was a little bit of a letdown because the person had already escaped out the back window of the shower. Never thought 
that someone would be able to get through this window. Our most common problem is not thievery. People don't steal stuff from our houses. Our most common problem is squatters. You know, it's it, every time it's like to go in there and do drugs. Every time, I don't know why this is a pattern, but every time there'll be like a piece of pottery and a nightstand. But instead of putting their cigarettes out in the piece of pottery, they just burn it into the nightstand instead. And I'm like, ah, it was like two inches away. Like, come on. That is the most common thing that happens for us is they use the dishes and they sleep in the beds, which is so funny because our beds are short sheeted. So the bed, the sheet comes down, turns back halfway and then goes back up. So if you try to crawl into one of our beds, you can only get halfway in. And so they must be like so frustrated with us by the time that they actually do it. But that is our most common is, is squatters. And that's it's a, just a reality of real, real estate. And we go back in, we restage the house, get it back put together. They change the locks out, close all the windows and get it back on the market again and go. In the moment, it was a very terrifying experience that we had someone basically squatting in our listing. You know, my assistant's a young woman and you know she was in the home alone for a few minutes with this person, but fortunately had the good sense to back out. I love that she was like, you must be an Airbnb guest. I've made a mistake. I will just move out of here. Yes. Versus being like, who the hell are you? And where's right. your shirt? At least he was wearing a shirt versus the other way around. He wasn't Donald Ducking. That's that's a plus. That's a good thing. Yeah, today, right? yeah, he wasn't Donald Ducking. We now take security more seriously. It's a real concern. A lot of our sellers are putting in those ring doorbells that have a little camera in them that has a motion sensor. So the second somebody approaches the door, it starts filming and you get a, a video on your phone. And that's been super helpful because not only can you see people, you can also hear people and they look in the windows and they go, oh, the staging looks so good. <laughs> <laughs> so conversely, the opposite of that, what was your absolute like best day in real estate with all the things you've done? Uh, I mean, I think I think the most exciting day for us was was when I inadvertently set up my new brokerage. So to back up a second, so like when you are a new real estate agent, you have to be an agent at someone else's brokerage for like two or three years. Like you just can't go and start your own brokerage. You can't be sure. a managing broker overnight. Yeah. And I knew yeah. I always wanted to have my own brokerage. I didn't like having someone else's name on my sign. I wanted to have our name on our signs. And so you have to patiently mm-hmm. wait your three years. I got to the three years. I got the right took the online courses and all that nonsense. And then you're doing all this like state licensing BS and it's all complicated. No one's written a guide of like how to do it step by step. And so I was forming my new brokerage and I I was thought I was doing it in such a way where I could flip a switch one day and I could go from being an agent at my old brokerage to now I have my own independent brokerage. Unbeknownst to me, one of the things I did triggered an email to go to my old school brokerage and they call me up, you know, a half hour later and like, oh, hey, Matt, we see that you started a new brokerage. Guess you're leaving our brokerage today. And I was like, uh, yes. I was planning to make that transition in like a couple weeks, but uh, yes, I guess we'll make the transition right now. And so, you know, my stomach dropped, but it was like, well, great. Now I have my own brokerage and we're off to the races. It's happening. Quick, let's call in order to the yard signs uh, with our own name on them. We're going. (laughs) And so it's really exciting to have my own brokerage, especially in a world where so many agents are that we're seeing consolidation amongst amongst bigger brokerages. And most agents hang their license with a big brand where many consumers don't have a strong affiliation with those brands and don't know what those brands stand for. And as an agent, you know, they cost you a lot of money for what benefit. We get to have our own thing over here in Seattle and do business the way we want. And we're not beholden to 
a big brokerage with thousands or tens of thousands of agents. We're really happy about the world we live in. And we feel a lot of clients, you know, choose to work with us because it's us and we're small and we do things differently and we're not traditional and we're not old school. You know, we work with a lot of brokers and I got to say, you guys are always on it. You always answer our questions. You always answer our phone calls. It is such a pleasure to work with you every single time. Matt Goyer, it's been such a pleasure having you here today. Matt is the founder of UrbanLivin.com. It's Urban, U-R-B-N-Livin, L-I-V-N.com. It's the coolest blog about all things living in Seattle and a brokerage too. Matt, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. It's been a blast. We love working with you. Your staging is amazing. Matt Goyer, how about that guy, huh? He is so awesome. I'm so, it's so awesome to hear these agents that are just crushing it in COVID. When we really deep dive into what is working for them, it's really not rocket science. It's just a lot of hustle and dedication and elbow grease, all the things that made him successful all this time and being okay, being different. I also really appreciated that part of his story. Yeah. Niching down and saying no and him just being able to absolutely take his core value values from what existed before COVID into a really thriving business right now. I think it's so awesome of him. I'm so excited that he's been able to create that success in a really crazy year. It's a really interesting business model in that it started out as a hobby and then actually turned into a business. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many Mm -hmm. hobbyist real estate agents there are out there who like they have one thing that they do as their full-time gig and then like, you know, they get one or two listings a year. So rarely do you go from being a hobbyist real estate agent to actually like running a business having you a brokerage going and I think it might just be like in his veins where he's just one of those like go-getters that totally he's like well I I just have achieved this stuff because I can't hold still (laughs) serial entrepreneurship is a is a thing it's just who you are and it's just like who happens to have a blog as a hobby you know what I'm saying like there's a lot of hustle in that person who wants to do that and it sounded like he was saying that that he was like basically just taking notes for himself because he wanted to buy a condo and there was so much information that it was too much to keep track of. So he decided to keep track of it on a blog, <laughs> which I was like, that's great. Then it became a huge business opportunity. It's just so awesome. Yeah. We went about it in a very different way. When I was a general contractor, it was the housing bust in 2007, 2008 that caused me to lose my job. I was a GC working on commercial buildings. I lost my job and I had to figure out a way to feed my family. And there were no jobs to be had for architecture, general contractors, but I was what I was. And so I said, well, I'm going to start a lamp store and mm-hmm. I'm going to go to thrift stores. I'm going to buy lamps. I'm going to spray paint them and build cool shades for them. And I'm going to sell them in a store. And then I realized, oh my God, I have no retail experience at all. And so yeah. I rephrased the question and I said, okay, if you could do anything and money didn't matter at all and whatever you did would make you happy for the rest of your life, what would you do? And I said, I would move around furniture. And I was like, okay, great. You know what you want to do. You want to move around people's furniture in their houses. How do you make money doing that? And I was like, okay, well, uh, the only time anybody wants the furniture moved around is when they can make money off of it. And that's when you're selling your house. So I guess I need to be a home stager because my husband was visiting his family in New York and I was driving through the gorge going to Boise to visit my family with my kid in the 
back seat. And this is before cell phone laws, so I wasn't endangering my child at the time. I picked up the phone, I called my husband, and I said, Joe, we're gonna start a home staging company. We're gonna call it Spade and Archer. And my husband was mm-hmm. like, that sounds great, honey. You're gonna do a great job. Like best husband ever. Oh. Years later, a friend of mine had recently started a business and she came to me and she said, what do you do when your husband doesn't support you in your business? And I'm usually not at a lack of words. I usually have an answer for just about everything. And so I started thinking about it. I was like, okay, let's think of an, an example of like when my husband was not supportive of my business and like when he didn't believe in me, what did I do in that situation? And I looked back through like all my files of my entire history. There has never been a moment when I didn't have my husband's support in my business. He has always been like, no matter what, even like the day that I was like, our building burned down or the day that I couldn't pay payroll because we didn't have enough money. That sucked. That was two days before Christmas. My husband has always said the same thing. It'll come from somewhere. He's always been like, just tried and true, fucking believed in me, which puts a lot of pressure on me because he has so much faith in me, I need to perform. But the opposite of being like, well, you're gonna fail. It's gonna, you're not gonna make it. Would have just shut me the fuck down. So like there's, I think behind every successful person, there is somebody who just believed in them. Wholeheartedly, hands down, like faith type believed in them. A lot of decisions that we have made around the company have been around saying no and firing clients. literally talking to a client and being like, hey, you know what? I I think that we are not the person for you, but let me make a recommendation. And, you know, a lot of times people call us and they say, you know, I I need this specific project done. And I had one call last week and they're like, we need a poker table put into our living room. And I was like, you know what? We don't really carry anything like that, but I can recommend this furniture party rental store will have a gaming table like that. So I can recommend, you know, these different places. But if it's not, if it's not something that we do, it's okay to say no. And it may be the person and it may be the scope of work. I try to be nice about it and I say, gosh, I wish that was something that we do that'd be so much fun, but it's not in our wheelhouse. But here, let me, let me recommend something else for you. And, you know, real estate agents, bless their hearts. They've got their sphere and we're in a lot of people's sphere and they know that we are very resourceful and good at what we do. And so they call us and they say, I want you to design my wedding. And I'm like, thank you so much for thinking of us. That's not what we do. Unless you want a mid-century wedding theme. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of sofas at your wedding. It's not something that that is in our wheelhouse. And, you know, weddings are on weekends and evenings and our people work Monday through Thursday. And, you know, they're 10 hours a day from seven in the morning till six at night. Weddings are outside of that scope. Nobody gets married on a Tuesday at at three, you know, at at 10 o'clock in the morning. So which I think they should, because I think more breakfast weddings would be awesome. I'm just saying. (laughs) I'd like, can you imagine a huge cake made of pancakes? How cool would that be? Maybe we should be planning weddings. You had an experience this week that you don't have to do that often, but our creative uh, principal, Chad, was out of the office and you had a very much work inside the business in a way that you normally don't have to. It was really tiring, but it was also really fun because I was doing two jobs. I was doing my job as founder and then also the creative direction for Chad, who's our creative principal. And then yesterday, we also had one of our directors in our Seattle office also out of the office. So I was doing three people's jobs in one day. Yesterday Yesterday was tough. It was, it was hard, but I got through it. Chad's our creative principal. He's in charge of like the way that every single project looks, like the stuff that actually goes into houses. 
And Cole, our admin guy, called me up and he was like, hey, Chad has like 700,000 vacation hours saved and he's going to lose them at the end of the year. You may want to mention something to him because Chad loves his job. He is really into it. And I think that he thinks of it as being fun. But uh, Spade and Archer has always had the core values that we are thoughtfully, uh, thoughtfully conceived. And part of being thoughtfully conceived is that we all need time to recharge our batteries. We all need some time off every once in a while. And so we actually force our employees to use their vacation time because if you don't use it, you lose it at the end of the year. And so it forces everybody to take a vacation every year. And so I called Chad up about two months ago or so and I was like, hey man, you have like excessive vacation time. Why don't you plan a trip somewhere? Why don't you go and like, you know, what my family and I are doing is we're like booking a house in Palm Springs for the weekend. And we're just gonna go spend the weekend down in Palm Springs and cook for ourselves and not be exposed to COVID and have a swimming pool and a hot tub. So a couple days later, he calls me. He's like, all right, I'm just doing it. I'm taking a week off. I'm going to Palm Springs for the week. And I was like, great, super fantastic. Let's get it on the calendar. So when he's out, his job doesn't stop. Like it still has to go. And so I got to go in and look at every single project that we installed this week. It was so fun and so interesting. And I was working with a couple of designers that have only been with us for a couple of months and like teaching them about things, getting them to look at the projects the way that we look at it. And I noticed this trend that like we kept having rooms that were painted in bright colors. So a lot of times we can't get the homeowner to repaint a room. And so a room is bright red or bright green or bright blue. And we were introducing then a secondary color into that room. So that room was now a blue, yellow, and gray room. And I was like, ah, no, we can't do that. And so I was constantly going in and being like, okay, let's take the yellow out of this room and just make this a blue and gray room because gray is a neutral and then yellow and blue are both colors. And the way that we define neutrals versus colors, and this is, uh, maybe this might be just a Spade and Archer thing. I thought this was an all design community thing, but I don't think it is. The colors are the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, purple. And then the neutrals mm -hmm. are the non-rainbow, black, gray, white, cream, brown, beige, and yep. sometimes gold. It's like vowels, A-E-I-O-U, <laughs> and sometimes Y. <laughs> right. <laughs> gold is sometimes a, a neutral. And so I was talking to these folks and I was like getting them to understand, like if we have a room that is already blue, we're very passive in our designs. We're just gonna design it as a blue room. We're just gonna go with it. We're gonna let the, the room tell us what it's supposed to be. And the reason for that, the reason why we do that, why we're so passive in the way we design these spaces is because let's just say that John and Jill are looking at houses and they're looking at seven houses that day. And each one of those houses has 10 rooms. So like three bedrooms, two bathrooms, a living room, dining room, kitchen, family room, and an outdoor space. So 10 spaces they have to look at. By the end of the day, they've looked at 70 spaces. If they don't have an easy way to discuss the rooms that they looked at, then they can't discuss them. So if they're like, hey, John, do you remember that house that had the hardwood floors and there was that one room that had a window in it? And John is like, ooh, I don't really remember that house at all. But he just kind of says like, yeah, uh-huh. And he's like, well, remember the countertops? I think I like those countertops. And John is like, no clue what you're talking about. But if Jill can say to John, do you remember the house that had the blue bedroom in it? Yes, I remember that house. Well, I think that the red bedroom should be Emily's room. Okay, yeah, cool. I totally agree with you. And just by assigning these colors that are nonverbal cues on how to talk about each room, we are facilitating conversation between our buyers. And if we can facilitate conversation between our buyers, they will buy our house. Because if you can't talk about a house, you can't buy it. 
And so that color that of that pillow that we put in that room makes a gigantic difference if that house sells or not. And so yes. it seems so simple, but like I realized that like this conversation that Jill and John are having is not intuitive to our designer who's actually in the field who's putting those spaces together. And so I'm trying to pass that knowledge on to them this week. And it was really so great. Chad does a fantastic job, but it was so fun just to be able to interact with these people that we've hired. And like, I have very little contact with them at this point because there's now three layers of people between me and that person. So it was fun. I really liked it. Yeah, but it's also awesome for them as well because not only are they learning what our system is, but then from you, they're learning how we communicate the reasoning behind it to agents in the future because sometimes agents will experience our processes as very inflexible or very rigid without understanding why we are saying no to certain things why we are niching down into a very specific process right like why we are doing those things and that's so important to communicate so people just don't like think that we're just like arbitrarily making this stuff up yeah (laughs) there's a really good reason behind everything we had one client one time who freaked out because we had we call it color blocking a house we had color blocked a house assigned one color to each room and we try not to repeat colors we won't have like two or three bedrooms that are blue uh we'll have a bedroom that is blue and one that is green and one that is yellow she kind of freaked out and was like this is so boring i don't like it i don't like it is always the argument i don't like it and we're like okay well this is the reason why we do that and we went through and we talked to the entire reason and then she came back and she said well i don't like it and at that point we're like great we'll just change it for you because on a pay up front project we're gonna get paid whether that house sells or not and here's what here's what i love about that particular project we went through we changed it we put all kinds of colors in every single room and guess what it didn't sell oh my god you're kidding yeah pay a front project we'll change we'll change anything you want because you're going to pay us whether it sells or not and yeah totally absolutely we've been doing this for a while i've been around for 10 years in general business one in five businesses survives the first year in general Mm -hmm. business one in 10 businesses survives the first five years and in home staging, it's even higher than that because there are so many people who would decide like, I'm going to be a home stager. And after the first year, the numbers that are still in it, it's maybe like one in 25 people who start home staging the first year actually in it a year later. And as a home stager that has survived for 11 years and flourished and grown into three cities, we're doing this because it works. We do it successfully over and over and over again. And when we are told, hey, you can't, you don't know what you're doing, you're an idiot. And here's the thing is like, I would never tell a a real estate agent how to negotiate or market their project because that's not my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. I, I've been told a number of times how I'm supposed to stage. And I'm like, okay, sure, whatever, whatever you want, as long as it's pay up front. If it's guaranteed, I don't care. I'm staging the way I stage it because that's how we get paid because we are successful at 98% success rate. Our guest today was Matt Goyer out of Seattle at urbanliving.com. Check out his blog. It's fantastic. Our music is composed by Joff Metz. You can find him at fivestarguitars.com. Uh, Kelly Hanahan, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. If you have a story that you want to tell, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much to the people that have reached out. We're loving your stories. They're fantastic to listen to. You can find us at spade-archer.com. Click on the podcast link. It's called Behind the Yard Sign. Thanks for being here, Kelly. You're the bomb. Thank you, Justin. This production of Behind the Yard Sign was brought to you live from the Spade and Archer Studios. Spade and Archer Design Agency is the world's first guaranteed home stager.